There we go. Ah, there we go. I just keep saying we're back. (laughs) We're back. A whole nother year. What year is this, Dave? This is our fourth season of this show. Yeah. Boy. Depends on your definition. Like Dancing with the Stars is on like season 25. Right, and we have how many in the can? Um, we have, uh, you said the other day in an email to somebody like 100. So if this was Trump, we could say 600 in the can. Right. we probably have a... Around ninety, but you uh, anybody can access them by going to. They can go to SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, just just search about for every place. This is a podcast. Yes, it is a podcast. But tonight it is a live show. Live, we have a live First show. We have a live show. How long? We have a live show on the radio. God, that's right. Where have we been? We've been away on the summer, but every week Nashville. has been a, a, a live show that we recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. That's right. That's, uh, that was in May. Yes, and um, it's 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 been really cool. We should we should do some welcomes. We should welcome our new producer. Yeah, that's exactly. We have a new producer. His name is Nathaniel Hawkins. His name is Nathaniel Hawkins. All right, Nate the Hawk. He and hates we that. took his mic so he can't even say hi there. No, <laughs> which is probably for the best because he has a terrible speaking voice. Ah, but it's yours ridiculous. Of course. Yes, exactly. So we want to do that. By the way, the song you heard coming in was "Don't Let Love Down" by our good buddy Rob Fusari. In a moment, we're going to ask our guest if he knows Rob Fusari. Or has heard of Rob Fusari. He's the guy who discovered Lady Gaga. He oh, went here. And I've he's one producer. Yeah. Grammys. Yeah. Very just fucking talented. Personal friend of ours. Yeah. Well, he's We're in very the very close. Yes. And he's but, doing a show at the bitter end tonight if anybody wants that's to right. get there after they listen to this show. Yeah, run to the bitter end in New York City. And then yes. uh, he's doing a show with us in March, but we will talk further about that. Right. Find us, musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for a weekly newsletter. Send us a tweet. Hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, at MusicBiz101WP. We talked about the podcast. We should introduce ourselves. You are Esteban. Yes, I am. And he is. Everybody knows that. Dr. Esteban. And you, of course, are Professor David Kirk. Philp. I'm the only Professor David Kirk Philp on staff here at Patterson at the University. Exactly. Now, we want to give some thanks real quick, and then we will introduce our students. Yeah, let's get to it. And then we will interview our special guest. We want to give thanks to the Music Biz Association. You people, all of yous, you should save the date for May 15th through the 18th, 2017, when Music Biz goes to the Music Biz in Music City. We're going to be there once again for year two with a whole bunch of students interviewing industry pros, making connections, creating shows that you'll be able to hear next summer. And we're going to have fun because we're going to put it all on automation. And you will be out in the sun this year. That's right. Instead of in the basement. In our in our speedos. But we do want to thank Jim Donio because he's been great. Jim Donio, president of the Music Biz Association, right, he has been uh, great. Uh, is letting us go back for a second year. So mm-hmm. that's very cool. We'll talk more about that as the year. 
progresses and you all get to meet Jim Doney again. We want to thank the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management because, you know, with acts like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, Sharon Jones, Charlie the Bat Kings, doing Inc. Great Charlie now. Puth is having a fairly is decent year. Hot? Would you not say so, Riga? Yeah, he is hot. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very good-looking boy, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and Kiss also. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. That is Van Dyne Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management. You go now. You go to vb-cpa.com. Mm -hmm. Go now. Not when you're ready. We're telling you, go now. Steve, who yes. did this song? You better go now. Who did that song? Do you know that song, Riggs? I know the song. 60s? I know this. Early hip-hop. No, it's uh, Moody Blues. <laughs> Early hip-hop. <laughs> Early hip-hop. That's, that's what uh, Biggie was listening that's right, to in the car. All right. And we also want to give our thanks to Christine Vey, who's a wealth manager and president of Vey Wealth Management. Christine has helped many professionals all over the world manage their investments to plan out for their retirement. If you are looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, or if you have questions on anything from investments, portfolio management, to insurance, retirement planning, you should give Christine a call at 732 455 Riggs, can you just say 1510? 1510. That's the number. That's right. the number to call. Now, is there an O before Vey? Yes, Christine Oy Vey. No, o Y. There's <laughs> <laughs> an Oy. Christine Oy Vey, a wealth manager. Uh, uh. And find her, Christine, at OyVeyWealth.com. Imagine if she actually changed. She actually should buy that. A domain name yes because of what we've done for her exactly right let's do some uh some intros so we already introduced you to nate the hawk nathaniel hawkins does not like being called nate the hawk he never should have told me that because that's what he will be called he's our producer this week student mm -hmm. producer. we also have a student mba and music management candidate on your left my right All right his name is miles franco his name is miles franco Hey, you guys. There he goes. He's not from Jersey, but he adopted the U's because that's what he's supposed to exactly. do. It's part right. of the uh, birth certificate here. Uh, Miles, how long have you been going to uh, Wayne Patterson for the music management in the NBA? Uh, this is my third semester. I came here from South Carolina. Um, pretty much the best move I've ever made in my life to date. So big props to my professors here. That's right. Very, very, we're good to have What do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> Stay out of South Carolina. It's pretty much. Yeah. Shout out to everybody watching or listening back home because, uh, you know, I want everybody to know that it's possible to come up here and do things. That's right. Great. Amen. There it is. That's nice. Good. Nice and Miles. That is all serious and emotional. Good for That's what know. I do. That's, that's what you do. <laughs> now we should give our little intro to our special guest. Absolutely. Our guest is Riggs Morales. Riggs, listen to this bio that I've culled together from 79 different sources. And we'll see what you think. And this is a great bio because it comes with uh, vitamins and minerals and everything you need for this nutritious nice. practice. So Riggs is the former music editor, editor of The Source magazine. He was a freelance writer for Vibe. Also, and this is just picking things. It's not everything. Gotcha. But Vibe, MTV News, which you didn't bring up when you spoke earlier. Yeah. It's um, He was on the management team for Eminem and Cypress Hill. He's done A&R for albums like Get Richer, Die, Die Trying by 50 Cent. Eight Mile soundtrack, uh, Recovery, Eminem's Recovery. He was at one point an MTV and VH1 on-air correspondent. Um, mm. He was an underwear model. He has written, <laughs> or did I make that one up? I, I don't remember. He's written biographies with artists uh, like, you didn't talk about the bios. So we can talk about that. Uh, bios for artists like Eminem and Fat Joe. 
Uh, he's been with Atlantic Records for the past three years as a VP of A&R and Artist Development. He was associate producer of the Hamilton soundtrack, which achieved the largest first week sales for a digital cast album and is the highest charting cast album since 1963. It was the highest selling Broadway cast album of 2015 and peaked at number one on the rap album chart. The first cast album ever to do so. And it was a great, it was about uh, the actor George Hamilton. That's right. So um, <laughs> my favorite track was How Do You Tan So Well? So And stay tan. Yeah, and stay tan. And, and stay spray tan. tan. How do you stay? Yeah, get rich or die tanning. Yeah, yeah. That's, That's right. <laughs> George Hamilton, folks. The George <laughs> Hamilton soundtrack with Riggs Brown. Right. <laughs> Now, we so, must say, we're alluding to the talk that he was graciously gave to the students at 5 o'clock today. Because you kept saying you didn't bring that up, you didn't bring that up. Thank you for bringing this up, yes. Okay. Yes, Carry yes, on. yes. So Riggs was here on campus today. We had him come and he spoke to the students, Carry which on. was which was great for you to do so. And uh, we had a room of 50. It was actually 33, but we're upping everything. So we had a room nice. of 50 plus students. The Trump, there. Trump era. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Trump era. But we really enjoyed it and they got a lot out of it. And it was great having Good. you here. Yeah. So Dr. Esteban Marconi will now begin the third degree well, I, of Riggs Morales. Okay. Yes. Well, uh, I was very interested in how you transitioned yourself from a writer, and I mean actual prose writing for various magazines, into the whole music side, the whole side of really now listening to music and not listening and regurgitating the cultural and the historical aspects of, of what other subject you were on at the time. Yeah, it was... Uh pretty interesting transition because writing about it and making the music it's just two completely different things but I will admit that a lot of the traits that I developed while writing you know you, uh, you, you, you reviewing albums and just really dissecting lyrics and just like listening to every component of this album from the credits to the sonics um, I actually still utilize that to this day in my approach on the A&R in front um, even, even the feedback because with albums especially as delicate as as rappers are, um, they don't want to hear that the music that they made wasn't good. So one of the things that you had to do was kind of hone in on, you know, you have to, this album doesn't work because, but there's a few bright spots, right. you know, kind of All thing. Right. So, yeah. and even now, like in some of the feedback that, you know, in, in dissecting the music, I'm able to pinpoint the positive, highlight the negative, but in a way that's instructive and everybody walks away learning something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So the, um, what we talked about in class, and I talk about it in history of rock classes, is how hip-hop really has changed song form. That uh, from the 90s, it's no more, well, you can still get it on country, where you get a verse, verse, chorus, verse, yeah. and, and a story being told. But I think it was Master P, the first person I ever saw on, um, on Saturday Night Live, years and years ago, must have been in the 80s. And... Then it was over, and I kept saying, where, well, where, what, and I was really dumbfounded until I started to really study how that um, song form is just not, it's new. It's, I'm not saying that it's bad, what they did, mm -hmm. but they revolutionized so song form. Oh, it's different. It's definitely different, and uh, that's actually the key to, like, the really good ones, is understanding song structure, which is so simple, and it's right in front of you, but we're so used to 16 hook 16 and yes, hook right. whereas i I've, I've found over time that less is more maybe 12 
And if you listen to some of the great records of the past, like from, you know, rock history, mm-hmm. they're not all laid out the same way. Some sure. get to the chorus a lot sooner. Some take their time to get to the chorus. And you got records like Bohemian Rhapsody. You got, right. you know, some of the stuff that the Motown fellas. So it's it, it's definitely different. Mm-hmm. It, it's different in a way where, you know, I think hip-hop is still young. I think hip-hop is still in its mm-hmm. 30s, and mm-hmm. there's still a lot more to learn and a lot more to go. One of your students brought up the fact that folks are just so, like, everything is so melody-based. Everything is just, like, kind of really overly simplified mm-hmm. to the point where it's, like, annoying. But it is what it is. It's a new phase. It's it's the, the way yeah. that we're on yeah. right now. I thought it was Dre, actually, that brought in that counter-melody in those early records. Oh, yeah. That brought hip-hop I think to a whole new level because now there was there was a musical melody line instead of just the story and and so on and so forth agreed Dre didn't necessarily Dre didn't just make beats he literally produced and he didn't just sample the way everybody else did he would literally have his bass he had his bass guy mm-hmm. there he'd have a band reinterpolating because it gave him the liberty and the freedom to you know play around with the initial sample whether it was Isaac Hayes whether it was a Barry White sample right. rather than just be limited to the few seconds that a sample allows you he play it over and just take it to a whole other place I've always compared especially the chronic the first one mm-hmm. it's the pulp fiction of rap albums like you notice how with pulp fiction everything kind of changed after yeah, that yeah so the, the the chronic is that you know the chronic just sonically telling a story uh just you know the musicianship of it all uh the amount of people that were casted to make that album mm-hmm. such an experience the amount of time that each one was given and how snoop was the co-star but there was a bunch of other great mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. stars playing little parts that even that album like corrupt could have been the steve buscemi of that <laughs> of that uh, of that album you know yeah. so yeah dre definitely did that that's a very yeah. valid point so what uh it might be a stupid question or a very obvious question. But, and let's put Ben Aller Ice aside. But when when Eminem came on, what was it? Was it a, a legitimacy? Was it an authenticity that that made everyone not care if he was white, black, green, orange, or, or whatever in a in this hip hop vein? Bear in mind, we're going back to say ninety six, ninety seven. Eminem and his type of he was an anomaly. Because aside from Vanilla Ice, the other standards that you had at the time were third base, who by then had broken up, and the Beastie Boys had developed such a thing that they're their their own galaxy. Mm -hmm. It's not even rap, it's not rock, it's the Beastie Boys. They're cool no matter what. So here comes M from a technical standpoint. Nobody technically was that good during that time period, no matter the skin color. And it's just maybe the fact that he did have like a, you know, a Caucasian nasal like a mm-hmm. tone mm-hmm. made it all the more you know intriguing and then the shit that was coming out of his mouth was just very you know I'm sorry the stuff that was coming out of his mouth um lyrically um was just like it played on that side of the fence it's like I remember on his demo the first thing he said what was on his day he said uh left the keys in a van with a gat in each hand ran up in East Land and shot a policeman F a peace plan this issue's in my hand Cause what, this twice. Uh, Cause what your life is worth, this is twice than. It was just like mm. the way he was able to. Yeah. He, this is a guy who literally studied the greats before him, and just knew how to put words in different places and pronounce things that weren't 
pronounceable before he came along. So yeah. Yeah. it was quite, it was an anomaly. Yeah. And look, I remember when I first wrote the article, my, my editor-in-chief was like, what is this? Because you see a picture, you don't hear the music. Mm-hmm. This is before the internet. He's like, what is this? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's Eminem. He's like, is he, what I mean, is he good? And I was like, he's very good. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and he got the respect of the underground early on. Like, you just can't, he came up in the battle scene. That whole yeah. eight mile thing was real, you yeah. know, so. Yeah. And because you're an anomaly, because you're white in a predominantly black genre, you better come with it. Yeah. And yeah. you can't just, you know, unlike most, most uh, hip hop artists have a safety net of just using the N word. Mm-hmm. You can do that. Mm-hmm. So you have to get a little, even more creative, yeah. you know? Yeah. But he also had a great sense of humor. As well, because I read yeah. an article that you uh, did actually, I think it was with uh, the Atlantic Records blog mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. And one thing you said was you don't see a lot of humor, no. or, or at least two years ago. And Eminem had that, you know, he, yeah. he you could listen and you could, besides the sound and what he was saying, but he had that extra mm-hmm. little yeah. something, levity. You know? Yeah, man. It's yeah. Like, it, it wasn't it's rare. too serious. Yeah. It's almost like um, it's that quality that makes a good, a good comedian a great comedian. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, wow, like I didn't see it wow that's funny yeah. and having come up in, in battles it's all about snapping and you know derogatory yeah. just being real disrespectful but humor always brings accessibility too yes I mean I think what, what was that uh, Jazzy Jeff and uh, I can beat Mike Tyson mm-hmm. I always think that's like that's like a turning point to me for for white audiences to start listening because it was it had such humor to it yes. and it wasn't all gangster and it wasn't all Whatever, and it was just the accessibility of that was it was just great. Because I created such a great niche for himself, Fresh Prince. Like yeah. it was all personality. Yeah, you know, exactly. nobody ever questioned him for being that. Nobody yeah. expected him to have a crazy skill set. He carved yeah. his niche with that. You know? Yeah. Now I uh, we were actually alluding to the the rhythmic quality of um, rappers. I may be dating myself, but I like to think of a. What I use as one of the criteria for great rappers is, in, in terms of the rhythm, mm-hmm. not the lyrics, but in terms of rhythm, if I can close my eyes and they fit into the beats, just as a Cadence. jazz saxophonist of the 40s and bebop or whatever, mm-hmm. just can tear the beat apart, and and it just swings and it fits in. That's that's one of the criteria I use. You know, just me. When I can close my eyes, it doesn't matter who it is, but if they're rapping and, and that occurs, it just makes such a, a musical package for the, for the you know, it becomes a record to me. It becomes a whole, a record in the sense of how do we define record now? We were, oh, we were talking last year, somebody came in and said, you know, the word record came from making a record of it, not a record, because we don't do records anymore, but you're doing this producing this thing and you're making a record of what happened today at this particular like time. physical recording uh, That's the why it's all the record. And, and, and the light bulbs went off on both of us. Right. Yeah, that's why you can still call it a record. You know, when people say that, you guys are making a record that's or whatever. Amazing. So, that's the way, anyway, I, that's one of the criteria I use. I don't know if they do that in A&R. I wish I would have, you know, when, when when that student had asked, what are some of the criterias? That's one that I definitely look at, cadence, which is just like, can right. you write a beat? And can you, how, you know, in terms of limits, sometimes you hear these really technically gifted MCs and these rappers that just couldn't write a beat to save their life. And I've always believed that it starts with the cadence. Like, you have mm-hmm. to be able to write that beat. Like, because mm-hmm. it starts with the beat. And if you, if you sound like you're tripping over it, 
that's already a bit, it's not yeah. an easy thing to learn no, you it's, know it's it's very similar to jazz and yes. the swing and you can't really i mean it's been in a lot of years you can't teach somebody how to swing no. i mean you you know and some people as um who was here arif martin uh, martin what's, it, what's yeah, his name joe uh, oh his yeah his son joe 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 said that you uh, he would he used the term when he was here he said and he had the gift of swing and i had never heard it that way but that's really true when you have that and you're able to swing it's it's a gift oh, you can't go to school to and, and learn it yeah. and that's the same thing I, I as i'm saying i'm trying to make this uh, comparison with the great rappers as the great saying, ones know how to do it the yeah. really great ones uh outcast uh biggie was excellent in yeah. fact biggie swing was so so a unicorn he's the type where big daddy kane kind of was the one that developed it where it's like you're going one way one way one way with the flow he'll make a left a sudden right and then all of a sudden but still stay in pocket yeah. and still keep throw a punchline in the mix that's why i always felt biggie was the greatest because yeah. his flow in any pocket was unstoppable he was the first to do a double time from not being from the from the south from the south because at the time the south was very but he was the first east coast artist to try it and everyone did it after that it's almost mm -hmm. like he made it safe you yeah know? yeah big factor man yeah and that's like the saxophone is playing 30 second notes when they're you know like a coltrane mm -hmm. or something and still in that pocket you know it's really really Super good point important. it's a good good discussion here uh, oh kind of fitting in with that i was going through your twitter stream earlier today and on june 4th you tweeted you just said what happened to r&b oh man what did you mm. mean by that explain what you were thinking i think r&b is in a really weird place right now i think the soul is gone and a friend of mine answered the question rightfully said uh it moved to london <laughs> and it's just like he's right because in london when i go to london and based off the music that's coming back from there there seems to be a little bit more soul in their approach i think r&b right now is in a very esoteric place that you know doesn't really speak to all audiences and it's unfortunate because i think i believe we need options on all levels especially with r&b and hip-hop uh hip-hop is getting to a place where you have options if you don't like this you like that but there's a divide within r&b where it's mm -hmm. like you're either into the new kids r&b yeah. or you're into what they guess they call adult ac and it's like what happened to that middle ground where we had options the 90s was an amazing time for r&b um, because you had these kids that grew up on 80s and 70s R&B. I just don't think now R&B is just in a... There's no soul, man. Yeah. It's just like there's no voices. There's no particular voice. And it's just like Sam Smith is soul. Yeah. You know, um, Adele is soul. Mm -hmm. Although I don't believe she conveyed it on this last album, mm -hmm. personal opinion. And it's just like, what happened? Where, where is R&B? Why is yeah. it that we're stuck in on either this or that? an identity crisis big time in fact we had a, a grad student who did a thesis on that and one of the questions we asked la reed last year when he was here talking at a, uh, a lecture not on on the radio mm -hmm. and he agreed that there was definitely an identity crisis that's that has occurred between the new r&b and the standard r&b that yeah. that everybody from motown on that everybody knew about so, do, you, yeah, do you agree with the cycles though? Because like we we have it in rock, yes. you know, you know, like yeah, grunge came out in um, eighty nine, ninety. You know, when Nirvana, came yeah, out, you know, and yeah. that kind of took us away from the from the heavy metal and the glam stuff. Yeah, and um, you know, we've we've had it in hip hop, we've had it in pop. You know, so R and B sounds like it's 
it's it's waiting for that next big yes the next, I whatever it's a michael jackson or the next prince or something like that i believe so um i'm me as an a and r i'm always on the lookout for a voice i think it does start with the voice and then from there you can you know find the right producer to build you know to help you know accentuate and bring that voice out but i think it is a generational it's a phase it's a wave but um I think it's going to change for the better because I think once things say in a one-dimensional place, as I had mentioned before, they, it leaves the opportunity for someone to come in and just completely disrupt it with a sense of tradition. Mm-hmm. You need some sort of tradition mm-hmm. in there where it's like, wow, this sounds new. No, it's not new. It's just that like you've been doing this whole other thing. Somebody dipped into the past. So I love about Bruno Mars. Bruno oh, Mars yeah, is a jukebox. Yeah. He's literally a jukebox. Yeah. Like the fact yeah. that I love how for he example. captured... He captured the police sound for Locked Out of Heaven without, like, sounding like the police. Mm. He just took, like, you know, the elements that made that early police stuff, you know, mm-hmm. fat, fantastic. And even his R&B approach, it's like very, this next album that he's working on is very rooted in R&B because he feels the same way. It's like, what happened to R&B? So he, he dived into, he dipped into 90s, into the 90s R&B uh, space to really capture what you're about to hear for this next album. So we were talking about R&B, uh, excuse me, we were talking about A&R mm-hmm. at 5 o'clock, and um, I think many of the listeners out here are still going to sort of have this aspiration that I could only be an R&B, uh, an A&R person or something. Uh, talk about just basically what your your daily routine is, that you you come in at 10 o'clock or whatever, and then what what happens? Man, I start in the morning. Uh, my kid, you know, now wakes up at around 6.30. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I get a chance to glance, I'm looking at my phone right away. Like, work starts as soon as I get up. You don't know what you missed. Cali time, L.A., uh, you know, international time. You just never know. So there's honing in on ex- processing what you missed over the last, you know, six, seven hours. And then going about the day and just, man, it is literally putting out fires, completing tasks, listening, searching, corresponding, um, because I have about maybe close to eight to ten projects that I'm working on. Every single one of them requires studio time booked, mix and engineer taken care of, sit down to go over this other album, see if it's ready for release, having to sit down with our product manager to see if, you know, the timing makes sense. What's the temperature on this one? This guy's working on a mixtape. Shouldn't it be an album? So it's it's a bunch of variety that just annoyingly enough just leaves me at the on this phone like at the beck and call of this phone like non-stop right um and you know answering you know to bosses obviously and just listening to mixes and it's just it's it does not stop it really doesn't especially you know when when you have as much responsibility you know you know mm-hmm. as, as i have it's just mm-hmm. like you don't ever want to drop the ball on anything yeah you know? Uh, you were associate producer, or our associate producer, on the Hamilton soundtrack. How different was that than the normal putting together an album of, of a single artist or whatever? I wish every project was like that. <laughs> because that was scheduled, executed, as discussed. Uh-huh. That never happens. <laughs> right. You know, you got to leave room for error and with all these other projects. Like, these guys, man... Over the course of two weeks, honed in on making sure the instruments were all set up, everything was cool on the production front. We devoted a whole week to making sure that every single element that's captured musically on the stage is right, set, ready to go. And then we devoted a couple more days to just singing. 
mm-hmm. you know, for the for the the, the 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 cast members to just come in and just do the rapping, singing, and all those other. So things. it wasn't a live cast album. No, no, we okay. avoided that. We wanted to make sure right. that we recreated the whole thing, right? You know, in the studio. And I would assume because they're doing it so much that. I mean, I remember when I in the studio used to hear Take 82. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't hear that that much for the for the Hamilton. We actually did. It was a very a bunch of takes looking back now that I was like, ooh, we should have kept that take. But, you know, ultimately that, that, that you know, is, 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 on, is on the amazing freaking squad that, uh, that, that puts that together. That was Alex Lackamore, Tommy Kale. Because it's interesting because Tommy, who's a director, is in there directing. Mm. Everything and how it, you know, the, directing the whole flow, and then you have Alex Lackamore handling the music production side of it, and of course, Lynn is there throughout the entire period. So it was just so well done, and mm-hmm. to see the reward of that again, it's rare, man. I wish everything was that, <laughs> you so know, no, no issues with too many cooks in the kitchen with all At these all. producers, all these people hanging out, Mm-mm. all right. So, as associate producer. How is how is your job different on the Hamilton soundtrack versus on another project? Well, with that, this one, it was very important that what I sold uh, to get this con to to get this soundtrack is is actually executed, and really it boiled down to the sonic standpoint because we didn't want it to sound like just any regular Broadway cast album. We wanted it to sound sonically like something that we can listen to on every on every day but you still have to keep the Broadway fans happy so we kept that nice little balance there and my job was to make sure that that was in line you know making sure that the right folks were in that room you know while Alex did his part now we go off the mix and, and here we go mm-hmm. so it's knowing the right things to do because for example like you did, did you have any Broadway experience prior to that would you know how to produce a Broadway At soundtrack all. yeah and I wouldn't put my like that's the thing you have to allow geniuses and creatives to create mm-hmm. i think that's the mistakes a lot of a and r's make sometimes you know a and r's because we come with the title and we come with the sense of you know responsibility um there's a fine line between you know helping and being intrusive you know and it's like in a case like this you kind of basically have to stand back and watch and then whenever you're asked or whenever the opportunity presents itself you get ahead and state an opinion but otherwise, you just kind of let that take its course, and you're there as a resource. So I'm there as a resource to make sure that whatever they need, we're good to go. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 the the structure of that is that just under the uh, auspices of what you do for Atlantic by being associate producer, or is that sort of like an over and above kind of thing? Like, does somebody like that get like a, get a half a point, you know, for sales, you know, or is that just Let's say I get oh, a title. No, yeah, no, no, let's say, let's I'm say not I work asking you how much you made. I, yeah, I just say, but let's say <laughs> when I get that f- thing is done. Yeah. No, in a case like that, like because I went all out, I got the deal done. Like mm-hmm. I was literally the, the human being that was able to bring that project over there. So with any project, you definitely, and this is for all you aspiring A and R's, man, you're definitely entitled to a royalty for something that you bring in and you mm-hmm. sign. It's very important, and that's something that, you know, just to be super transparent wasn't something that was taking place where I was at prior, you mm-hmm. know? And it's just like, you know, over at Atlantic, that is a very important thing. That's almost like an extra incentive, you know, for folks to really do their job aside from just, you know, doing their job. But um, with this project, yeah, I definitely, because I literally got my hands dirty 
to get this project to, to not lose this project to someone mm -hmm. else because yeah. we almost you know Columbia was in the mix right. non such was in the mix Warner Brothers was in the mix right. so you know I just made the best case you know I had the credibility and the clear idea of exactly what this is and what it can be uh -huh. you know so and then the ability to actually execute the vision yes which is almost the whole thing right there basically yeah. so A&R people can get you mentioned a royalty mm -hmm. uh, on the artists they sign. Is that from the artist side, or is that where does that or is that from the label side? It's from the label side. Yeah, yeah, because okay. it's just like you know, especially if you have a hit. It's just kind of like a that bonus. royalty. Yeah, the royalty is yeah. beautiful if you have a smash record. Right. You know, and royalties are you know you get those. They take a while for you to collect on them, so it's like you get them maybe twice a year. Mm -hmm. And when you do, depending on the hit, it's you know you come back chunky or less chunky you know <laughs> but that's like you know you right. gotta catch one it doesn't happen so I can get a royalty for like 10 projects doesn't mean any of them crack because that royalty doesn't really kick in until things are recouped right. you gotta recoup mm -hmm. so we uh, talk about also that with hip hop um, there can be 10 writers and 8 different publishing companies Yeah, and it's sort of the jokes sometimes are, I was in the same room, so I became a writer, or I said, hey, and yeah. I became a writer, since rather than the old days of uh, Oscar and Hammerstein and so on, you know, yeah. sitting at the piano and banging it out and, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, what, what sort of, um, I mean, does that come with just the amount of people that are surrounding the artist or, or, or what? How does that work out that so many people can get a piece of... Uh, it, uh, you know, with hip-hop, believe it or not, it depends on... The sample plays a massive part in that. Mm -hmm. Because let's say, for example, I remember the 8 Mile soundtrack, uh, there was a Gangstar record. Mm -hmm. The Gangstar record had a scratch sample. The scratch sample was from a record called... It was a record, like a posse cut uh, called Queensbridge 2000. Or it was just like a... It featured like eight rappers from Queensbridge. Mm -hmm. So when you see the writer's credit, it's those eight rappers uh -huh. plus Gangstar plus whoever, you know. So that's so how it starts adding up. That's how it adds up. The writer has to get his, you know, his or her credit, you know. Yeah. But in terms of a bunch of folks being in the room and all of a sudden that, I think folks are a little more closed nowadays. Mm -hmm. like you're not, if you're not in there, like if you're, if you're in there, you were summoned to be in there. You were allowed to be in there. You should be in there from a creative standpoint. But when you look at those album credits, take a look at those samples because, you know, mm -hmm. that's where it boils down to. Yeah. There was a Hamilton record that we wanted to use, but we couldn't we couldn't clear it because, you know, Lynn Lynn paid homage to uh a lot of classic rap records. So when you're paying homage to these classic rap records that were cut during a time where Sampling was like it was like the Wild Wild West. There was no clearing. Yeah, yeah right. There was no clearance. It's just like the Moody Blues. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, sample that. Yeah, but, right. You know, you couldn't do that because then you it's like eight, nine different writers on there. Yeah. A top of Lynn and you know the Hamilton folks. Yeah. So yeah. Miles is going to read a question for you via tweet. Cool. All right, Riggs, we got an A and R question for you. Um, this is from Zach Matari. He says, what piques your interest in a new artist? What are you looking for? And what makes you pull the trigger? Uh, voice, perspective, work ethic. 
And then I got to look around this artist with enormous potential and look at his management. Who's his team? Who is this guy that he has a bunch of faith in that when I'm not around, he's going to end up relying on? Is it homeboy management? Is it a seasoned veteran? Is it somebody who gets what this is? Does he need a manager? So that's what I look for in an artist. When you sign an artist, is it on your own or are you going to Julie Greenwald and saying, I want to sign this artist, hey, come with me? And Or does she say, let me go watch this? Artist? Funny because the way it's set up at Atlantic is, is quite cool. It's like Craig Kalman handles creative, Julie handles marketing. Mm -hmm. And we have to run it by both, obviously, but it starts with Craig. And Craig, you know, Craig, I've never... I can't say that I've been in a situation, though it has happened, where Craig Kalman has stopped me from signing something. He'll make you think about it, and he's going to pose a question. Like, I don't like it. The staff doesn't like it. You seem to love it. Are you willing to dive on the sword for this? And that's what you have to ask yourself. Is this worth, you know, the risk? And, you know, Hamilton was a risk. Very, very unconventional. Mm -hmm. Like, the idea of a Broadway cast album, like, those don't sell. So I had to convince folks that this was definitely something worth taking on. Fortunately, Craig saw it. Craig knew what this was, and having him, you know, having had my back on that definitely, you know, helped because, again, it's very unconventional to everybody else on the staff. But, you know, once, it, once you hear that entire body of work, everyone signed up. Um, when I was having dinner with uh, Steve Marconi earlier, uh, he brought up the fact that... Um he was going to ask you, uh, and a, a good A&R guy, let's say he gets a big hit, let's say it's a Backstreet Boys mm -hmm. hit or something, can live off that for 10 years, you know, can have a job for 10 years because he or she had that big hit. Is that still valid today? Like you had, you've, I think you're responsible for uh, what, 60 million albums or something like, some big number like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just had Hamilton. Could could you say if you were stepping outside of yourself and just looking in could you say oh i i have at least 10 years left on my career in a and r if i wanted because of what i've done 10 years in my career 10 years employed mm -hmm. maybe that's it maybe 10 years employed i yeah. think would be better yeah mm -hmm. man i've haven't watched the game all these years and just watching some of the mistakes that some of these other a and r's do you never want to be complacent and like that's it like, the Hamilton thing was great, man. What a blessing. You know, my intentions were never to make a head out of it. My intentions, be quite frankly, was the music education standpoint of it. Like, I know what this meant. I know that my children are going to see this, be inspired by it, mm -hmm. and this is going to work wonders in classrooms all around the world. Um, but I can't rest on that. I have to, it's like, what else have you done? That's the thing about A&R. The question's always going to be posed. What else have you done? Mm -hmm. Especially when you go in and try to you know, figure out a bigger opportunity and just, you know, going for a bump up a raise or this or that. They're always going to ask you, what have you done over the last year? Mm -hmm. Forget that two, three, four years. Like, you're, you're, you're looked at, you know, like, all right, you did Hamilton, then what? So my mentality is never just rest on that. I've got to go out and find the next thing, you know? So. And the mistakes other A&R guys have made are they've gotten complacent. You, you Very feel. complacent. And it's just like, oh, it's cool. I'm still bringing in money from such and such. Yeah, and it's just like, man, nah, I can't. Like, that's just, just, just too risky. This is definitely a you, you amnesia. Amnesia is the leading cause of uh, <laughs> <laughs> is the leading cause of freaking breakups amongst you know industry folks. Well, we tell our students, <laughs> and even on um, getting started or how do you get started, and 
you can't say go out and try to manage somebody that's already done something. Mm -hmm. You go out and find the next Rolling Stones or whatever you're in yeah. and believe in them and be willing to give up everything because you have this belief in them. And that passion is going to get you at least in the door to, to uh, I think it's recognized in this industry probably more than any other industry is that when, when you can see the passion on somebody's face, you got to certainly just give it a listen. Yeah, big you know? time. It's funny because I've, I've always admired uh, a former colleague of mine who's now running A&R over at uh, Interscope, Aaron Bayshuck. Aaron Bayshuck was responsible for finding Bruno Mars. Mm. And when I say responsible for finding him, it was, you know, Bruno crashing on his couch, you know, like working on the ideas and just like literally developing this guy, this really short, very distinct looking talented dude and it's just like I remember when I first saw Bruno Mars I was like wait what is this like <laughs> amazing voice but this doesn't look like there's nothing about him that resonated star quality but you had a visionary like Aaron Bayshuck who believed in him you know and put him in positions where some of these songs that he was cutting his demos were being used for other people's hit singles and it just kept on and on B.O.B. Mm. and Travis McCoy and then finally when it was his turn Man, that boy shined, and now he's, you know... Mm -hmm. He's uh, Bruno Mars. He's Bruno Mars. <laughs> so I've always admired that. I study and studying my colleagues, and just like, you can always tell who's a music guy and who really believes in that, and I think that, I think that goes a long, long way. Yeah. It's just, you know, yeah. the belief in something. I think that's what makes this all the more rewarding, when you're being told no, 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 and yeah, I don't know, and all of a sudden, you know, you strike gold, you know? Yeah. New yeah. tweet. All right, Riggs, I know you hit on this uh, during your talk earlier, but uh, Joel Filippi would like to know, um, a majority of people who want to work in music seem to think they're going to be an A&R executive. Oh, yeah. Why do you think this is so? It's the sexiest job on, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the sexiest job on the uh, on the registry, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, I think A&Ring has always had, like, a, 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 a very, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Cachet. Cachet, very almost fairy tale like, and you know it's like, that's the guy that does this, that's the guy that does that. But it's work, man. It's work. I'm completely opposite in that regard. Nine out of ten A and R's are some cocky like pricks. Like that's just. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have encountered. There's some good ones that yeah. don't really, and then there's some that are you just like, wait, what? Um, and you know it kind of it starts there it starts with the A&R this is the guy who's walking in and basically saying we need to sign this and here's why and if it works man it gets swollen and it's just like you know yeah it's it's the sexy job but as I say first one thanked last one fired and I got that from another A&R colleague who, you know, who also you know is in the business and you gotta be willing to put your you on the line yes big time because if the if it is a stiff, then you're probably not going to be there in the next 30 days. 30 days, a couple months. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, never want to be in that position, you know, so. A couple of weeks ago on Instagram, you posted some rules. Yes. Um, and huh. one, do you, do you know what they are offhand or do you want me to read them off to you? You can read them and I know exactly what you're referring to because that was one of those like, no, 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 no things that I had to, that was my very nice way of saying <laughs> because that was one that, you know, that artist was close to getting dropped twice. Okay. It was believe in the artist and his potential, even when they don't. 
even when they don't. Um, make sure your team is intact. Stay the course no matter what. Number four is feed the streets. They will decide. Number five, don't bask in glory. Keep going. And then, you know, the hashtag was push it. So, yeah, so what made you put that up there and what? where did those rules come from? Those rules apply to that particular artist. Um, his name is OT Genesis. And if you know me and what I'm about, that's not that's not something that uh, you would associate with me normally. But I believe in my artists, and I believe like you got to give this 110 percent no matter what. There's gonna be ups and there's gonna be downs. So he was putting out records for months, and it just wasn't panning out. He was a hard worker, but the records just weren't connecting, and it was every reason, excuse was every excuse was being given to not you know really go to the next level with the guy. So as a Hail Mary puts out, you know, um, I'm in love with the Coco. That record shoots through the roof. Platinum seller. Um, he's an instantly labeled a one-hit wonder. And I know that this dude is potential. His potential is more than that, but he's got to keep at it. He's traveling the world, seeing... He's, 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 he's doing shows all across the world. Is dropping records, not really connecting again. So again, we find ourselves in a place where you know the you know the, the the questions being asked: Do we keep this guy? Was he good for just one hit record? And I'm like, no, like he's got more. Like give it a second. Like he's got one right now that's starting to bubble. The record was called "Cut It." That just went gold. Yeah. So it's like you know, um, he's aware of this, and he's aware that the support system wasn't all the way there for him. And when we're when that photo was myself, Buster Rhymes was the executive producer and the person that brought me the artist, and him, OT Genesis, and that's our way of saying, ha, you know. And then when I look at what worked in a way that rather than me just stick a middle finger out on an Instagram post, I'm like, let this be a lesson. Rule number one, you know. Rule number two, and it can apply to everyone. You know, with all your artists, you're gonna be doubted. You're 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 gonna be second guessed, but you gotta keep at it, man. Your parents are gonna second guess you. Your boys are gonna second guess you. You know, I remember in the business. You know, when I first started in the business, I had to round up uh, some funding to go to a music conference, and you know, like I was doubted even on that. I, I ain't going to a conference. I ain't nothing gonna happen for that. I got a job when I came back from that conference mm -hmm. because. The person I was interning for saw that I was out there. I had to sleep in a closet. I had to improvise. I paid for the flight to get down there, but I didn't have a hotel. So I slept in the closet. I scared the hell out of some people, too, because I was just like, <laughs> people waking up, and all of a sudden, I'm sleeping in the closet. I use the, you know, um, you know the, the shoes that you, you could put up, I mean, back in the days. Yeah. Uh, you put the, it's kind of like a little, yeah, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what it's called, but that was like my pillow, like, yeah. you know, and I had to do it, but... You just gotta keep, the, you gotta stay the course, man, because they don't see what you see. So yeah. I put that on there as a lesson to everyone, kind of thing, you yeah. know. Well, we always preset that you're you're in the arts because they couldn't stop us. Yeah. That's why we're in the arts. Yeah. And you don't say you don't go in the arts to make money either. That's yeah. a gift should it happen. But you're in the arts because you really you can't do anything else. This is it. This is what you want to do. It sounds like the nice thing to say, but I've never, and, you know, I got friends that can attest to this, but I've never really been about this for the money. You know, the success that I have never was rooted on, you know, with a financial gain. And obviously, you know, I'm one out of ten in that regard, but 
Um, that's just me. And I've, I do believe that when you just genuinely, instinctively go after something, believe in it, invest in it, and go fight for it, the rewards are going to come from it. That's why I've always, even, again, like going back to Aaron Bashuk, I've always admired, like, there's a rewarding experience. You know, having Bruno Mars thank you, you know, on the Grammys and just like, and so when Lynn shouted me out with the Grammys, that was one of my bucket list things. I'm like, wow, like wow. now I get that feeling. You I know? remember that because yeah. I had just talked to you on the phone about a week before yeah. the first time. You're like, oh, I know, I, I talked to him. I know that guy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So there it's like that, that's rewarding because that's somebody who's being acknowledged for his great work acknowledging you for the work that you put in to help him get this great work and it set a standard for me in terms of the kind of people that I work with like now it's like on that checklist there's definitely a social component where it's like is this guy a prick you know I don't know you know so well you got to work with that person you know it, yeah it, it's quality of life is is whether we want to admit it or not is matters yes big you time know? you know I can't work I've worked with bosses who are just terrible people and it just ruins your life and it can just bring you down and it affects everything you're doing and who wants that you know I mean that's a bigger deal than you think but that's a whole quality of life issue big time it's worth worth talking for the listeners too one thing we talked about that I, I don't I don't want to not say here is at five o'clock we were talking about going from internship to vice president of A&R or whatever but one thing that uh, Riggs brought up, which I think we say in different ways in our classes, but it was brought up, I thought, very well today, and that is if you're in an internship, just make yourself valuable. Yes. And yeah. uh, you might want to just exp expound on that. Sure. I, I mean, I, it could it could resonate from, from internship to even at the stage that I'm at now. You want to make yourself valuable. If you're an intern and you're fortunate enough to have, I don't know, a season or semester to go in and, and really soak it all in, don't just sit and twiddle your thumbs. I, I, I notice that from a lot of interns. They just go in, go through the motions. It's like you, you make yourself valuable to someone. Like mm -hmm. someone needs help doing something. Why don't you, whether it's a fax machine, you know, whether, a fax, um, <laughs> whether it's a printout or getting lunch or something, just make yourself valuable because, you know, as this person grows and relies on you, you can grow along with this person, you know? Um, that's just so, so important. I think even at this stage of my career, I'm like, I have to make myself valuable to my bosses, mm -hmm. you know? They brought me on board for a certain reason, for a certain skill set, a certain trait. I've got to go out and make, that, and, and, and make use of that so that we can put up numbers and we all win. Mm -hmm. Make yourself valuable. That is very, very important. Does that ever, the last thing I want to say, and I'm hogging, I realize that. Next week I won't say anything. Uh, <laughs> it's pre-recorded yeah, show next we, week, so it's. I mean, we talk philosophically about this business that success is measured quantitatively. Yeah. I mean, period. How many fannies in the seats and so on? Does that ever frustrate you as an A and R person who's so close to these creative people that may not be successful in the quantitative realm? It's funny because I find myself being the guy that explains to them why. Like, I have to be the bearer of reality. Not mm -hmm. bad news, but just like, the reality is this. You want to be here, but this is the kind of music that you're making. You want to be this kind of artist, but this is the kind of, you're going to have to change somewhere and reassess, you know, what the next steps are for you as an artist. Like, some artists are due for or are can benefit from an overhaul. 
you know, from pressing the reset button. You know, they get frustrated and they hit a wall. There's a reason why you're hitting that wall. You have to figure out what that reason is and then from there readjust. So I find myself more than anything just being almost like a therapist and breaking down why mm-hmm. things happen the way they do based off, you know, numbers. Yeah, yeah. Well, you communicate well like that too because I did see you tweeted to somebody within the last day or two, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he had one of those guys just, hey, man, here's my track. Check it out. Yeah. And he probably was shocked that you actually did. Yes. But you gave him, in, in 140 characters or less, a very good critique of what it was. You know, I think uh, it, the beat was dated. Um, the production was a little mm-hmm. cold or something. I forget exactly what it was. But, um, cadence, I think his cadence was off. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no you know, rhythm. yeah, but, but, but that, that's great that you can, you have the ability to do that communication without sounding like, like a prick, like you had mentioned that some guys yeah. are, you know? I mean, it's easy to say it's not good. It's another thing to say why it's not good. You yeah. want to give them the why so they can yeah. walk away like, all right, you know what? I get it. I know because you know, I know what I need to do now. Let me reconfigure and go yeah. from there. I mean, students used to come to my office and say, well, I heard from uh, X label they want to hear more and i was so that they didn't listen to you what do you mean they want to hear more yeah. no they didn't even listen to you they just can't say it to you yeah but they don't want to take the time or whatever and that's all they want man that's all these kids want they yeah. just want to be told what am i doing wrong and you'd be surprised like man i gotta like one of the things i didn't stress in the conversation is relationships and the timing of the relationships i i, I learned early on I'm rather than try to be friends with L.A. Reed, I'm gonna work on being friends with L.A. Reed's assistant's friend, kind of like, mm. or or with. I'm sorry, not even like that, but more so. I have a great relationship with very influential people who came up at the same time I came up. So there's a sense of, you know, we were both on the same path, different fields, you know. So I never really stressed meeting the L.A. Reeds of the world and and. and you know the Jimmy Ivings of the world knowing that this guy next to me right now going through blood sweat and tears is possibly the next you know mm. Jimmy Ivine or Orly Reed I remember one time I, I was on the phone with uh, Benny Blanco obviously by far you know one of the top producers in the game top three and um, man we were on the phone I didn't I didn't know that I knew him he's like yeah man you took a meeting with me you listened to my beats I really appreciated that that was years ago which goes back to my, you just never know, yeah. you know? So that's a big, 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 big factor. Just, yeah. you never know. So listen. Here's uh, one more tweet that mm-hmm. Miles, is, uh, our last one, because we're is starting to run down. That's it. This is a major label question. Um, what are your thoughts on artists who don't want to sign to a major label, and how do you convince them? That's a good question. And you got people like Chance the Rapper completely, you know, taking the independent thing to a whole uncharted territory like I'm pretty sure he's gonna end up being uh, Grammy nominated you know and it'll probably be the first time that a free album is like well uh, you know an indie album a free album Mm -hmm. is gonna be nominated for a Grammy and um, he's breaking barriers and it's a difficult thing because artists when you come into the label having some sort of numbers and traction in general you already have an advantage. You're not going to get a regular spooky deal. You're going to get, like, you know, mm-hmm. at least a sizable deal that's going to make sense for you. But when you're breaking ground the way he is, you have to ask yourself, what is, what do I need a major label for? And 
when I see something like that, I always hone in again, what's their weakness? You know, and and not, <clears throat> I'd like to think that someone like a Chance would like to get on radio. You know, and that's something that labels can offer. That's a whole nother ball game. That's a monster in itself that even if you're indie, it's not an easy thing to navigate, you know? Um, you don't know if, from a branding standpoint, there's some opportunities there. And again, none of this com- none of this uh, connects to Chance because Chance got Nike sponsorships and he's you know does festivals like he's an anomaly in himself. But any other artists, you know, like you have to be able to provide. What are you gonna give me that I can't get on my own? And believe it or not, they might. There is usually something that they don't have. You can only go indie, but for so long. Mm. You know, especially if you want to go worldwide trajectory. And I'm curious to see how far Chance is going to go because he's on his way there. Interesting. <laughs> you know, well, we are. We need to be on our way out because oh, we are. There's another show. Fifty-eight minutes after the hour. I mean, yes. At nine o'clock. Uh, yes. So this we need to. Some station. This is a tremendous radio station. It's Brave New Radio, WP88.7, Campus of William Patterson, the University. We should give some thanks. Let's give thanks to Riggs Morales. Yes. Riggs Morales, make it happen. Very awesome. This is great, man. I hope any, I hope the listeners learned, you know, yeah. just process this and just, you know, don't give up. It's going to be a process and it won't be easy, but just don't give up and hopefully your music will end up at my desk. Yeah, that, we would like that. We want them big here because then they can uh, donate money to the Steve Marconi fund. New headphone. Yeah, the new headphone fund. Uh, we want to thank Miles, Miles Franco for being here and being a great NBA. Thank you. Nathaniel Hawkins, Nate the Hawk. First time he ever produced and I have not... Noticed one mistake yet, except for a tiny bit of feedback right there. Uh, and then, um, so we want to uh, let you know next week uh, we're going to have Katie Jellen of Secret Road Music and Sherry Spoltori from Global Songwriters Connection. After that, Mike Keeley, Motor Scout Music, Ken Jacobson, Video Game Music, Michael McDonald from Mick Management, Benji Rogers, Pledge Music, all new people coming in the brand new season. So make sure you're coming back every Wednesday night on the Brave New Radio 88.7. Check us out, the podcast, Music Biz 101 and more. I am David Professor Kirk Philp, and you are? Steve Marconi, and we are back. We are back, and we're never leaving ever. And uh, we want to say not hello to you. We want to say adios. And this is where our voices get turned down. Here we go. You're turning down our voices. Now. Remember when? Turning down our voices. Now. Looked at me and cried Said something broke inside us